0: We continue in our journey through the book of
1: Zechariah,
0: and at this point there are really two portions left in uh, this book. We can see it starting in chapter 9 where it says the burden of the word of the Lord came. That starts the first portion of uh, this uh, second part of the book. So this is a, a specific prophetic word. And then uh, starting in verse 12, again, Zechariah says, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So we have this two-part word of God that's that's broken up in, into these chapters, uh, clean divisions. And so we pick up in, in chapter 9, and the prophetic word here is uh, so precise and it's so astounding that there are many people who say, well, this must have been written after these events. Somehow, way, an author got a hold of these uh, events in retrospect and began to write about them. But the truth is, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that Zechariah was able to write with such precision about the future. At this point in history, these, these events that he is writing about are not past, but they are future. And the Holy Spirit has a perfect eye. He's omniscient, and so he not only sees the past perfectly, he not only sees the present perfectly, but he also sees the future And so here we are today. He's not only omnipresent, that is, he's everywhere at the same time. So here we are. We can can bow our knee and whisper to the Lord a prayer here in this nation and in this church and even in our own house. And the Lord hears our prayer. He hears specifically what we're saying. We just get before the Lord. and We say, Lord, I'm, I'm bringing this before you. And we have his full attention. And yet somebody halfway across the world, Millions of other people can be praying just as intimately and uh, just as specifically. And the Lord is meeting and answering every prayer that is going up across the world 24 hours a day. So he's omnipresent, but he's also omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything that's going on. He knows everything that's going on in this church. He knows everything that's going on in our homes. He knows every little bit of activity that is going on in the entire world. He knows it all. And so it should not surprise us as we're reading this text of Scripture that he knows the future. He knows exactly uh, what is going to happen in your life in the future. He knows how many days he has ordained for you, how long you are going to live, and if he tarries, at some point there will be a funeral for you. And he already has marked out that exact day. In fact, he has marked out that exact hour. Everything is in his plan. And so when Zechariah is writing, and perhaps this is actually his writing when he is a bit older, the style is a little bit different. So perhaps he is writing 30 or 40 years later than he had written the first eight chapters, and now he comes at this from a perspective of an older man. And that's interesting because we have this this walk with the Lord, and the Lord has given him revelation as a young man, and now he is looking back and he is prophesying toward the future. He's looked back over his life, and God has spoken to him, and the Lord has been so faithful, and he's been so good to him his his whole life, and now the Lord is still speaking to him, even as an old man. Oh, God, would you come and speak to us, not just in years gone by. Lord, we're not satisfied with that. Lord, help us. Lord, help us not to just be satisfied with yesterday's experiences of you. Lord, we thank you for, we thank you for decades gone by. We can reminisce and, and talk about the times of worship in your presence. We thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for times of prophetic words in our life that um, have been given in the past. Lord, we thank you for all that. We thank you for the, the times that we've heard the word of God with such clarity and power. But God, we're still asking that you would still move in our life, Lord, that you would still come and that you would still speak to us, Lord, all the days of our life. Lord, if you allow for us, if you have ordained for us that we are going to go down to the grave as old gray-haired people, let it be with whispered prayers, O Lord. Let it be with visions of uh, what you're going to do still in the world, even after we Die. Let it be with blessing and like Jacob as he blessed his sons and his grandsons, as he worshipped. Lord, let us worship even as we're dying. Lord, let us know you. Let us know you. And Lord, let us not stray. Lord, let us let us not get to the point where we say, Lord, you you moved in our life at this point. We thank you for that. But now we get to a point in our life where we go, I don't know. I don't know if the Lord is still speaking. I don't know if he is is still moving. Very interesting. At uh, this past conference, this man who was talking was talking about how he had followed in his pastorate in two pastorates. He had followed men who had fallen morally had fallen into adultery, the, the sin of adultery, and he had to go in and in many ways clean up and clean up a mess in the church. The interesting thing uh, about these men was they were not young men. They were not in their 20s, and they were not in their 30s, but they were in their late 40s. And uh, he even said that uh, they were they were good men, And yet, somehow, the enemy had gotten a hold in their life and they had fallen. By the way, we see that same principle in uh, the scripture, where oftentimes uh, people who are struggling with God as Christians and then who fall, fall during middle age. That's very interesting. David, uh, when he fell with Bathsheba, he was not a teenager. He was not a 20-year-old man. He was not a 30-year-old man. He was a he was a middle-aged man. Isn't that, isn't that something? And so we come to the Lord and we say, like, Zechariah, God, listen, Lord, we want to finish the race strong. Lord, wherever you take us in life, that's fine. But God, let it be with holiness. Let it be with open ears that hear your word clearly. Let us stay close to the path as both men and women who want to be men and women of holiness. And it's interesting if we if we don't hear this word, if we don't take these analogies seriously. How we are setting ourselves up for a fall. But we have beautiful examples in scripture of men like Zechariah and men like Daniel and men like Jesus who are faithful to the end. Who heard from God their entire life and who stayed close to his side. And this is a a perfect example of a man who has heard from the Lord as a younger man and now is still hearing from the Lord as an older one as well and he's prophesying here about the future his future what is past for us now but for him at this point was was still future and he, he's prophesying here about judgment on the on the nations that have surrounded Israel those nations and those city states that had oppressed Israel God is um, saying, I'm going to judge them, and yet I'm going to protect the apple of my eye. I'm going to protect Israel. This is a a little ragtag bunch at this point. 50,000 of them had returned to Israel, and God is saying, look, I still have plans for you. I'm still speaking to you. You may not feel like it. You, You may be wondering, God, am I still... Am I still even in your, in your plan, Lord? Do you remember me? Lord, what is, what is going on here? They could be saying that. And the Lord comes across so clearly and so profoundly and so powerfully, and he speaks to them. He says, listen, I'm not done with you yet. I had plans for you in the past, and as the omniscient, all-powerful God, I still have plans for you in the future. I'm going to take care of your enemies And I'm also going to shelter, even though it doesn't seem like it, even though you're back in your land, some of you are still back in exile. I'm going to take care of you. I have not forgotten about you. I still hear your prayers. Keep going. Don't stop. Don't stop listening to my voice. Don't stop hearing me. Because there is something that I'm about to do in your nation, in Israel's life. And so we have this twofold division in Zechariah, and he comes and he says, listen, here's, here's the word, here's the burden of the Lord, this weighty word, this weighty word that often involves judgment, and it does involve judgment, but it also involves salvation here. There's a heaviness to the word of the Lord. person receives the word of the Lord, and they say, Lord, we thank you for giving us your word, but there's a heaviness in glory of it. There's a weightiness to knowing God and to hearing Him. Yes, we have joy in our spirits. Yes, we are truly happy people. But there is a there's a weightiness, and it's it's described here in chapter nine and also in the following as the burden of the word of the Lord. So why don't you open up your Bibles with me to Zechariah chapter nine. Zechariah chapter nine, starting in verse one. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. So, Zechariah says, here's the word of the Lord. Judgment is coming to Hadrach and Damascus as its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. So, God is saying, look, I'm going to come in judgment against Damascus. I'm coming in judgment against these peoples. But listen, Israel, I still have my eye on you. I'm still watching you. I'm still protecting you. So judgment is coming to Hadrach. Judgment is coming to Damascus. Verse 2, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, They're very wise in their own estimation. They're very wise in their own eyes. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. By the way, Tyre had uh, moved out to an island and had fortified this island that the city was now on with 125-foot walls. They were over 20 feet thick, and so in order for this city to be taken, a navy had to go out, boats had to go out, and then once they reached this island, there were these massive walls, and we have to remember at the point, there's no planes, there's no bombs. So the question was, how was this city going to be taken? And yet God comes and he says, I'm going to take Sire, I'm going to take uh, Tyre. I'm going to destroy it. Judgment is coming. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. Verse 4. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea. There it is. This island state will be struck down at sea and she will be devoured by fire. Now he moves on to the cities of Philistia, the Philistines. Uh, We remember the Philistines uh, with uh, David and his fight against Goliath. And we see the Philistines as the enemies of God. We see these prominent cities here listed. That now Philistia, the Philistines, are going to be judged. Verse 5, Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. So Ashkelon is thinking, look, Tyre is going to stand. I don't have to worry. The enemy might be coming, but they first have to deal with with tyre, but when they see this city-state fall out at sea, when they see this island fall, this impenetrable island fall that no one thought would fall, now they're afraid. They're thinking, well, this city isn't going to fall, and if it falls, then we're in for trouble. But we don't have to worry. You like if a nation was coming after us, and we had another protector. God had raised up China, for instance, to protect us. So we say, don't worry, China has a billion people. They're going to take care of us. And all of a sudden, China falls. Now we're in big trouble. That's the picture here. Verse 5, Gaza too. And shall writhe in anguish. Ekron, these are all cities within Philistia. Also because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth. This is um, foods that would would have been eaten in idolatrous worship. So the picture is here these Philistines had been eating bloody sacrifices and blood is trickling down their face. And God is saying, I'm going to take away these idols. I'm going to take away the food that they had sacrificed and that they were eating. And it's abominations from between its teeth. So here's this idolatrous nation. God says, I'm going to take away its blood from its mouth. I'm going to take away its idolatries. It too shall be a remnant for our God. That's interesting. Interesting. God says, somehow I'm going to uh, use the Philistines. In fact, they're going to morph into Israel. They're going to become one with Israel. I'm going to raise up some of the Philistines to actually worship me. Some of the heritage of Israel is people that actually came from Philistia. God brought them in. He made them part of his people. So here they had been fighting Israel for many years, many, many, many years. And all of a sudden, God includes them and brings them in as part of his own people, a remnant of them, it says here, for our God. It, that is the Philistines, shall be like, verse 7, a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. When David had taken Jerusalem, instead of killing all of the Jebusites, he allowed some of them to stay. And they became part of the people of God at that time. And that's exactly what's going to go on here. The Philistines, even though they have been the sworn enemies of God, are now going to become part of his people. What an amazing, uh, miraculous turn of events. A People that had fought him, a people that were against the Lord, now a portion of them, a remnant of them is going to be used in the worship of God. Can you imagine some of the fiercest enemies of God? saying, you know what, I lay down my weapons. I lay down my swords. And I I recognize that King Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Savior of the world. This is like uh, the transition of Saul when he is on the road to Damascus and all of a sudden God says, you know what, I'm going to use this man, this man who has been persecuting the church, I'm going to turn him around. And so we see even today enemies of the church, people uh, in the Muslim uh, religion that are sworn enemies of the Lord and say we'll never follow Christ, not as the Messiah. And yet even today, God is giving people in the Middle East, even right now, dreams. There are people that are in the middle of the night, uh, people from the Middle Eastern countries of the world that are seeing visions of Jesus Christ and having dreams of Jesus. Many people are turning even right now. Listen, we don't we don't want to miss that. Can you imagine if... Uh, the rest of the world, much of the world is waking up to the things of Christ, and we are still asleep. And oh, Lord, help us, help us not to remain asleep. God, don't let us, don't pass by with your blessings, Lord. Lord, don't wake other people up and leave us behind. Don't don't let other people see you and wake up with visions and say, I saw this man and His name was Jesus, and all of a sudden God brings a missionary in to share the full gospel, and people get saved. Lord, don't allow that just to happen to them. Let us be jealous for what is going on. God, we want that. Wake us up with dreams and with visions as well. So he says here that some of the Philistines are going to become like the Jebusites. They're going to be included with the people of God. So there's this judgment falling. There's this judgment that is falling on these different nations, on these uh, different peoples, and yet God comes along and he says, but I have a plan. I'm not done with you, Israel. And while judgment is falling on all these different cities, all these different peoples, I'm going to protect you in the midst of all of this. I'm going to take care of you, verse 8. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard. He's talking about here? He's talking about Israel. So while he's going to judge these other nations, these other city-states that we've just seen in this chapter, he's going to take care of his people, Israel. He's going to encamp around them. By the way, Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord goes before those who know Him, those who fear Him, it says in Psalm 34. You know Jesus, giving your life to the Lord, the supernatural event. We hear His, we hear His call. We come, we say yes, Lord. And uh, this world's going crazy. It's going mad. Right now, you and I, we need the protection of the Lord. And so God here says to Israel, I'm going to encamp about you. Oh, it's not going to be a visible thing where you can open your windows. But if you and I could, uh, God would open our eyes like Elisha's servant. He would open our eyes. We would see that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is none other than Christ, the uncreated one. And so he's our protection, but he has also sent created angels who protect us. I'm absolutely convinced that there are so many times in our lives where something terrible could have happened in our life. And uh, someday in heaven, the Lord is going to open our eyes and he's going to reveal the only reason it didn't happen was because there were angels there protecting us. And there are times when you can sense God's presence in his, in his protection. You can sense his power. And we even sing songs like, I can sense the, the brush of angels' wings. Well, is, is that all true? Perhaps not. Do angels have wings? That's, that's for a whole another sermon. But can we sense the presence of God? Absolutely. Have we even, according to the Hebrews, entertained angels unaware? Absolutely. Is it possible that you have been assisted by an angel in your life? Absolutely. And so if we could have our eyes open, even with the odds against us, and say, God, it seems like this world, it's, it's gone mad. There's so many things. There's so many problems in this life. you are talking about judgment here on the nations. We're seeing in our own day judgment with the nations. And God comes along and he says, but I've protected you. I've protected you. The angels of the Lord are are encamping around your home. They go with you in the car, those near misses. You say, well, how did that happen? Was it just I had a a, a good sense when I was driving? Well, perhaps you had a good sense when you were driving, but perhaps it was more than that. Perhaps it was an angel standing in the way saying, stop car, you're not going to hit this car. Just a few weeks ago, uh, Rick and I were headed up the interstate, to pick up a drum set that we were taking down to District Conference. And on the way up, unsuspected and unknown, we weren't even thinking. We are just driving along 60, 65 miles an hour, whatever, 90 miles an hour. No. I,
1: <clears throat>
0: we, listen, we need to sanctify this, okay? Don't know the speed, but all of a sudden, boom, tire blows out. And... We are wondering what in the world is going on, but it was it was so peaceful. It's like there was no one right around us, and even though the van was shaking like crazy, we able to just simply pull over to the side and uh, trying to find help and call call the, the, the agency that can send out help for us, and all of a sudden a guy shows up with, um, as he jumps out, young fella, he works for a local volunteer fire department. Pulls up his car, pulls out a, a fluorescent uh, green vest, tire iron. And he spent, we couldn't get a couple of these lug nuts off for anything. And he worked on this thing and worked on this thing, worked on this thing, finally popped that thing off and uh, was able to change the tire and we were on our way. Well, was that just uh, luck? Was that just chance? No, the Lord was with us. And listen, the Lord is with us over and over and over again in our lives. And this is why we need to just say, Lord, would you protect me? Would you protect my my family, my business, my church,
1: God, my everything, Lord? Or would you just protect me? God, I, I need you. I, I
0: would ask you, Lord, that you would even send your angels to to uh, to guide and guard the way. By the way, we are praying fervently right now, and this is this is no matter of just flippant prayer. But we're even praying for Sharon. And we're saying, Oh God. Uh, would you would you protect and preserve Sharon, wherever she's at right now? Lord, would you give her clarity? Why don't we pray for her right now? can we pray for her, Father, we lift her up to you. We ask you that the angels of the Lord would encamp around her. Lord, just as you promised to encamp around your people, Israel, God, you, you promised to encamp around us. And so, Lord, we ask you that you would be with her, give her divine wisdom in her team, we pray in Jesus' name, the protection of the Lord. Amen. So we have this this promise of protection. And so uh, God says to Israel, Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. Really? No oppressor is going to completely wipe them out? You would think that if there was any nation that could be wiped out, it would be this nation, this little nation. This insignificant nation, surely over time, at some point, some oppressor would completely demolish them. And yet they survive over and over again. They survive Rome and Pompeii, and they survive uh, all of the Caesars, and they survive down through the Middle Ages, and they survive Hitler, and they continue to survive. How is that possible? Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. So he said, I'm going to judge these nations, but I'm going to protect you, Israel. And this isn't just some future prophecy. This was future then, but for us, it's the past. It was actually fulfilled. And it was fulfilled very specifically by one Alexander the Great. And it's interesting, we have this specific account uh, given to us by the historian Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, who was used by God years later after Zechariah had prophesied this, perhaps around 480 B.C. or so, over 150 years later, in comes Alexander, used by the Lord to fulfill exactly the prophecy that we just read in chapter nine. And this is why it's so important that when we read these things, we don't just read them and then just give some loose spiritual application. We just say, "Well, this is this is what I think the uh, the, the word of the Lord means here." No, there was actually true meaning, and so when we're reading these texts, we go. What is this actually talking about? When did this happen? When was Damascus judged? When was Hamath judged? When was Tyre judged in all the Philistine cities? I normally don't like to read so much in a sermon. And perhaps when I'm done, we'll just finish up for today. But this is such a stunning account given to us by Josephus of what happened uh, in this text, he gives us some um, the fulfillment of it that some liberal scholars say this simply can't be. It must have been written after the fact. So precise, so particular. We know that Josephus was uh, given at times to some embellishment. Nevertheless, he was a fantastic historian. And I want you to listen to what Josephus writes about Alexander the Great and his conquest. Listen to this. So Alexander came into Syria. We're talking about Syria here. Again, you can compare this later if you'd like with our with our text. He comes into Syria and takes Damascus. He took Damascus. And when he had obtained Sidon, he besieged Tyre. Now, we know from history that he, uh, he took all sorts of dirt and wood from the previous c- uh, city that was on ground. And he made a pathway from the mainland all the way out to this island city-state. And he destroyed them. We're talking about absolutely surprising. So God is saying, listen, he's saying, in the future, I'm going to destroy you, Sidon. I'm going to destroy you, Tyre. It's exactly what happens. So now he has his eyes set on Israel. So he has destroyed Sidon, he has destroyed Tyre. And when he had sent an epistle to the Jewish high priest, there was, of course, a Jewish high priest at this point in the land, to send him some auxiliaries and to supply his army with provisions. And that what presents he had formerly sent to Darius, he would now send to him. So Alexander says, listen, high priest, he says, these presents that you've given to Darius in the past, this tribute, I want you to now give it to me. I'm going to come in, and if you don't give this tribute to me, you've given it to to Darius in the past. If you don't give it to me, I'm going to come in and destroy you. He's already destroyed these other cities, and the high priest now is, is left with a real conundrum. What is he going to do? So he says, now send them to him and choose the friendship of the Macedonians, Alexander, and that he should never repent of so doing, but the high priest. But the high priest answered the messengers that he had given his oath to Darius not to bear arms against him, and he said that he would not transgress this while Darius was in the land of the living. So he said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take the money that I've given to Darius, and I'm not going to give it to you. Upon hearing the answer, Alexander was very angry. And though he was determined not to leave Tyre, which was just ready to be taken, yet as soon as he had taken it, he threatened that he would make an expedition against the Jewish high priest and through him teach all men to whom they must keep their oaths. He says, I'm coming after you, Jerusalem you mess with Alexander, you're you're messing with somebody that you're never going to forget. So when he had taken a good deal of pains during the siege, he had taken Tyre. Now notice this. And he had settled, settled its affairs. He came to the city of Gaza. What's that? That's the Philistine city. And he besieged both the city and him that was governor of the garrison. So here he goes from these cities that we are talking about, exactly as the word of the Lord gives us here in Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, Alexander comes after city after city, exactly as Josephus says here. And now he sets his gaze on Jerusalem. Now remember, God says, I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to destroy all of these other cities. But when it comes to you, Israel, when it comes to you, Jerusalem, I'm going to protect you. Now, it says this. Now, when Alexander, when he had taken Gaza, he made haste to go up to Jerusalem. So here he's gone, city after city, exactly lined out in our text. And now he's headed to Jerusalem. And Jaddua, the high priest, when he heard that, he was in agony. And under terror as not knowing how he should meet the Macedonians, since the king was displeased as, at his foregoing disobedience, he therefore ordained that the people should make supplications and should join with him in offering sacrifices to God, whom he besought to protect the nation and to deliver them from the perils that were coming upon them. Whereupon God warmed him in a dream. Isn't that interesting? How did God come to this priest, this high priest? So the people are saying, Lord, we're no match for Alexander. We're just this tiny little people. Where this uh, people that have started to come back. We've come back now from exile. Lord, please protect us. They're fasting and they're praying. Therefore, God warns him in a dream, which came upon him after he had offered sacrifice, that he should take courage and adorn the city and open the gates, that the rest appear in white garments, that he and the priest should meet the king in the habits proper to their order without the dread of any ill consequences which the providence of God would prevent, upon which when he rose from his sleep, he greatly rejoiced and declared to all the warning he had received from God, according to which dream he had acted entirely. And so he waited for the coming of the king. So here's little Jerusalem. Judah, the high priest, has been warned in a dream and been told in a dream, listen, don't fight him. I want you to dress in all of your priestly garments. And I simply want you to wait for the king. And then I want you to go out and I want you to greet him all in peace. And when he understood that he, that's Alexander, was not far from the city, he went out in procession with the priests and the multitude of the citizens. The procession was venerable and the manner of it different from that of other nations it reached the place called Sapphach, which name translated in Greek signifies a prospect. For you have thence a prospect both of Jerusalem and of the temple. And with when the Phoenicians and the Chaldeans that followed him, that is those who had followed Alexander, thought that they should have liberty to plunder the city. So you have Alexander coming and you have behind him Phoenicians and Chaldeans and they're thinking. When he destroys Jerusalem, we're also going in and we're going to plunder the city as well. They thought they were going to have liberty to plunder the city and torment the high priest to death, which the king's displeasure fairly promised them. The very reverse of it happened. For Alexander, when he saw the multitude at a distance in white garments, While the priest stood clothed with fine linen and the high priest in purple and scarlet clothing with his miter on his head, having the golden plate on which the name of God was engraved. He approached by himself and adored that name and first saluted the high priest. So you think when Alexander is going to come, he's going to ruin the city. He's going to torture the high priest. But according to Josephus, it's the exact opposite. He bows in reverence before the name. Who's the name? The name of God, the name of Yahweh that the high priest represented. The Jews also did all together with one voice salute Alexander and encompass him about. Whereupon the kings of Syria and the rest were surprised at what Alexander had done and supposed him disordered in his mind. What are you doing this for, Alexander? You could come in, you could wipe these people out just like you've wiped everyone out. Maybe he's touched in the head. Maybe something has gone off. However, Parmenio alone went up to him and asked him how it came to pass that when all others adored him, he should adore the high priest of the Jews, to whom he replied, I did not adore him, but the God who hath honored him with that high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream, in a dream, in this very habit when I was in Dios in Macedonia who when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia, exhorted me to make no delay, but boldly to pass over the sea thither. From that he would conduct my army and would give me the dominion over the Persians. Whence it is that having seen no other in that habit and now seeing this person in it and remembering that vision and the exhortation which I had in my dream, I believe that I bring this army under the divine conduct And shall therewith conquer Darius and destroy the power of the Persians and that all things will succeed according to what is in my own mind. And that's exactly what happened. He spared the city of Jerusalem. He spared the high priest and he spared the priest. In fact, he ended up giving them. He ended up giving them gifts and they were so blown away by his conduct and the way that he had treated them that when he offered for some of them to join his army, he said, listen, if you join my army, I will let you worship as a Jew. I'll let you do all of the traditions that you already do. Many of the people of God joined Alexander's army. This is, uh, this is breathtaking. You say, why do we spend time uh, reading through that and talking through this? Why is this so important? Because when the word of God says something is going to come to pass, that's exactly what happens. And when the word of God says, I'm going to destroy this city, and I'm going to destroy this city, and I'm going to destroy these people, and then we read in Josephus exactly the order that we read in the scriptures here, that's absolutely breathtaking. That's amazing. And then when we come and we think, Here he has taken all of these nations exactly. We know Alexander the Great. We know him from history. We think, this is marvelous how he has done these things. He's gone through exactly as the word of God. And our minds should be going, Lord, we worship you because your word is so perfect. And then we get down to verse 8. And we think of little Jerusalem. Lord, you say in your word you're going to encamp around my house as a guard. Lord, I've got Alexander the Great against me. Lord, how am I gonna stand? How am I gonna stand against such an enemy, such an army, such a powerful man, one of the most powerful men in all of history? And the Lord says to the high priest, here's what I want you to do. I simply want you to pray, and I want you to wait, and I want you to watch what happens as I work on your behalf. And that's exactly what happens. Alexander comes in, the city is saved, because there was a warrior, there was another king. There was another king who was fighting on the behalf of Israel. There's so much more to be said, we're going to pick up right there next week. But we're laying the groundwork here as we go through this book, this beautiful book. We're laying the groundwork for this beautiful pinnacle that happens in 12 through 14. It's unbelievable. And every chapter is like this. Majestic. Wonderful. To be worshipped over. And this is why we don't go, well, I think Sidon means this and Hamath means this, and no, no. We we pour over the scripture and we say, Lord, what are you meaning here? What? What was the prophecy? What did it mean? If there's ever a, a beautiful picture, it's of like men who are, I don't know, 70, 80, 90 Jewish rabbis, old men big long beards, white hair, glasses. They're pouring over the scriptures, pouring over the scriptures saying, what,
1: what does this mean?
0: business the bible says that the prophets would pour over their own prophecies. so they'd give these prophecies they they'd get the word from god and then they would pour over them going when is this going to be fulfilled and is exactly who is this person and how is all of this going to work out they were deep in the study of the things of god that god had given to them and that's what god wants us to do as we as we read his word We say, Lord, help us not to just pass over these texts, but Lord, help us to understand exactly what you're saying. And as our mind is fed with the truth of Scripture, all of a sudden we're able to break forth in wondrous praise and worship because we say, Lord, how majestic is your name that you fulfill this. Lord, you are so good. Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you for your majestic name. I'm not even going to ask the band. absolutely perfect. Everything that you have said in your word either has come to pass or will come to pass. Not one jot, not one tittle will fall away. Not one little stroke of the pen will pass away. Every word will be fulfilled.
1: Jesus. Lord, be glorified. Be glorified in my life. In my life. Lord, be glorified today. In my life. In my Lord, be glorified, be glorified in my life, Lord, be glorified today. In your church, in your church, Lord, be glorified. Be glorified in your church, Lord, be glorified today. In your church, last time. In your church, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. You sent your presence. You sent your
0: presence today. You're the King, immortal, invisible. You're the King of all the ages. The king of all the ages. Everything you say will come to pass. Everything you say will come to pass. Your word is
1: truth. Your word is truth. Your word is clean. It's clean, Lord. Cleans us. It's clean truth. It's like
0: soapy truth. It's Pure. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this text, O oh God. Thank you for this encouragement that you're going to protect your people. Lord, we bask in your protection today. You're going to protect your people. Thank you, Lord. Neither life nor death can separate us from you, Lord. Nothing can separate us from you.
1: Thank you, Jesus. Pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you as you go.